from my home studio, at least for now, welcome to Evolve, Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations. I mean, I think that like inherent in that thinking is that there's a specific type of um, like there's a, there's a unique black anti-Semitism or a unique Muslim anti-Semitism. I actually just don't think that's a thing. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and my guest today is Karen Maratz of Minnesota's Jewish Community Action. I'm going to be speaking with Karen about her Evolve essay, Fighting Anti-Semitism is a Critical Piece of a Racial Justice Agenda. This essay explores the relationship between anti-Semitism and white supremacy and efforts to build alliances to combat intolerance of all kinds. Karen is steeped in progressive activism in Minneapolis, and we, not surprisingly, spent a bunch of time talking about what's been going on in the city since the murder of George Floyd uh, a year ago, and more recently, since the conviction of former police officer Derek Chauvin. So a couple of episode notes. The most important is that my conversation with Karen took place really before the shocking violence between segments of Israel's Jewish and Arab citizens and certainly before the the 11 days of uh, of violence um, between Israel and Hamas, and of course before the 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 chilling spike in anti-Semitic incidents we we saw seen throughout North America and Europe, and those events clearly would have influenced the questions I asked, and 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 might have really impacted the trajectory of the interview, but. It's a thoughtful interview about anti-Semitism and the role that progressives and intercommunal alliances can play in combating it. And I would say recent events only serve to make this conversation more salient. And looking back, and I'm always looking back as a host, I'm, 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 I'm in the self-critical podcast host category. Maybe I should have introduced Israel into the topic regardless, uh, you know, in the interest of modeling conversations on difficult topics, even when you don't know, or especially when you don't know where exactly it's going to lead. I'm sure Karen would have been game. So what do you think? Um, did, did we miss something? Email us, let us, let us know. We always, we always want to hear from you. This is a, this is a conversation between podcasts and listeners. I'm at B Schwartzman at reconstructingjudaism.org. So the next note, Karen makes a brief reference to a one-day news story involving a spat between Jewish communal leader Nancy Kaufman and a group called the Democratic Majority for Israel. Um, it was a news story I'd missed uh, prior, to, prior to the interview, and if you followed it at the time, you've probably forgotten about it by now, but just really to keep the organic nature of the conversation, we decided to leave it in the episode, and we'll be including in the show notes, a JTA story explaining the kerfuffle by Ron Campius, a veteran reporter who I admire and have had the chance to, to spend some time with um, a great person, uh, reputable journalist. So before we get to the interview, the essays discussed on this show are available to read for free on the newly redesigned Evolve website, which is evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. I'm really digging the new look. The essays are not required reading for this show, 
but we recommend checking them out. All right, time for today's guests. Karen Moratz is the Executive Director of Jewish Community Action, a 25-year-old nonprofit organizing Minnesota's Jewish community for racial and economic justice. On staff since 2004, she has worked on campaigns for immigrant and workers' rights and played a key role in leading JCA's work to organize the interfaith partners in support of marriage equality in 2012. And since becoming executive director, she has built on ongoing campaigns for affordable housing and criminal justice reform, and she has launched a new program to work statewide with other progressives to build a shared analysis of anti-Semitism and white nationalism. And growing up in Miami, she was a teenage punk rocker. And if I had more time, I would have focused a little bit more on the music, but I promise we get into that a little bit. So Karen Marat, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Lots to talk about. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've really enjoyed uh, getting to talk to you a bit off air and now now excited to do it uh, to do it on air with everybody listening. So <laughs> um, great to have you. So first off, um, you you run this organization called Jewish Community Action in Minneapolis, where there's been a bit going on this this past year. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the organization and just what it what it does, what its mission is? Yeah, definitely. Um, so Jewish Community Action is a 26-year-old nonprofit organization. Um, I'm talking to you from Minneapolis. I'm in my house in Minneapolis, but we, um, we actually work statewide, um, although primarily in the Twin Cities metro area. We have an office in St. Paul that I'm in at this point in the pandemic about twice a week. Um, and uh, we organize the Jewish community in Minnesota for racial and economic justice. And what that means is primarily working on policy uh, that supports things like affordable housing and criminal justice reform um, at the state and local level, uh, municipal, city and county level. Um, and then we also do a lot of work within the Jewish community. We do a lot of training and leadership development that is primarily focused at making the Jewish community a more just space and building our community's capacity to then be effective um, on the issues that we work on externally in the broader world. Uh, we also started a couple of new programs in the last couple of years. We are doing, um, uh, we're in the middle of a two-year program working statewide with progressive partners, mostly non-Jewish partners, but also within our own community to build a shared analysis of anti-Semitism uh, and uh, to, to resist white nationalism collectively. Um, and then we also started some work uh, last fall, uh, shortly after the Minneapolis police killed George Floyd. Um, we, uh, we hired a community safety organizer and we now are our, we now have a designated staff person who works with congregations and partner organizations to, to have conversations um, and to mobilize around public safety and also um, security and policing within the Jewish community. So from what I understand, I mean, anti-Semitism has not been a priority of you or, your, or, or at least of your organization. There have been plenty of national organizations, sort of Jew, the quote Jewish defense organizations focused, you know, focused on that. Um, you write in your involved essay about how that began to change or, or did change in, in 2016 when you got a call from an activist about a swastika painting on a garage. Um, can, you, can you tell us what happened and how that began to change um, your trajectory somewhat? Yeah, I mean, I like I would say, we never really focused on anti-Semitism um, and, and didn't tend to think about it 
as much as other organizations for whom that is their focus. And a lot of that started to change in, I guess, um, I guess it was was uh, November at late November of 2016. I mean, that was part of it. I think it started to to, to change gradually, but that was a big flashpoint. Um, uh, a, a, a good friend and an organizer with a, a, a black led organization um, called me up and said, "Hey, did you see there was this giant swastika painted on this building on the north side?" And I was like, "I literally just saw it on Facebook. It's just a few blocks from my house." Um, and we decided to go clean it off. And um, what ended up happening was, you know, we cleaned off the swastika uh, on a very cold day and she tweeted some pictures because she was just like, I can't believe there was this like 12 foot giant spray painted swastika on the north side. Look, that's, that's bananas to me. And so she tweeted about it. And within a couple of days, we were getting just attacked online by white supremacists, neo-Nazis, and they had a really specific, I think what was surprising for my friend was their very specific understanding of what a, a Jewish woman and a black woman had done together. Um, and that was very salient for the people attacking us. And it caused my friend to say, I really had no idea. I really didn't realize anti-Semitism was still a thing. I thought y'all were normal white people. Now, obviously Jews are not all white people, but those of us who are white Jews, some of us also, you know, have been spending a lot of time thinking we're just normal white people. Um, and it became really clear, I think, to me, I always was aware that anti-Semitism was a problem. I think the shift for me and the shift in our work was that, number one, I started to realize that our partners and our friends, they didn't know that anti-Semitism was still alive and was still mm. a problem. And that number two, if our partners and friends who were working with in, you know, aligned around racism and gender oppression and, and classism, if they don't have an, an analysis of anti-Semitism, possibly that's actually weakening the work that we're doing to fight white supremacy. So it was kind of like, we always thought about it. We never felt like we urgently needed to address it because I don't think we realized that, that kind of the collective knowing was not what we thought it was. So, I mean, you wrote, um, I'm going to quote you here for a second, for a year and a half, we've worked with progressive organizations, labor unions, multi-racial coalitions, and elective officials to build a shared analysis of the threats against us and our paths to fighting back. So I assume there you were talking about anti-Semitism, racism, Islamophobia. Can, can you tell us about that, that work and, and, and where it is today? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we, you know, we, we launched this program thinking that we were going to do a lot of community dinners, obviously that <laughs> that didn't happen. Um, so we've been doing a lot. We've been doing everything virtually um, and we've been doing a lot of trainings. Um, and, you know, just as an example, like we will have a partner, like we have a partner um, called Gender Justice, which is a, like a tremendous organization in Minnesota that um, that works primarily in the courts, um, protecting the rights of, of women and trans people and um, and protecting reproductive freedom and, and choice. And they came to us and said, we want to do a workshop and we would love to have a better understanding of how the issues that we work on. So choice and misogyny, um, how those intertwine with anti-Semitism. And we put together an hour and a half workshop and we went and did a, a Zoom work workshop with them. Um, and then we continue working in partnership. You know, this is also sometimes um, when we work within the Jewish community, we do a lot of like virtual house parties right now where we'll have a JCA member who will say, I want to bring my neighborhood organization. Um, you know, during the uprising over the summer following the murder of George Floyd, there were a bunch of white supremacists 
supremacists that came to our town, like organized white supremacist groups. And lots of folks wanna understand what are the symbols that I'm seeing? Like I see the stickers on their trucks, what does that mean? And so we've also developed curriculum about that. And so we're just doing a lot of um, really relational um, workshops and, and kind of like virtual house parties at this point. Has that, I mean, you meant, you mentioned, you mentioned the murder of George Floyd, where we're a, a ways out now from, uh, from, from the guilty verdict for, for Derek Chavon. Has that, has that work continued? Has it been changed by, by, by the aftermath of the, the murder and its verdict? You know, for us, I think it's changed in a couple of ways. Um, you know, our, we organize all over the, the Twin Cities metro area. We, we build affordable housing teams um, in suburbs and in the cities where we're working to pass um, ballot initiatives around rent control in Minneapolis and St. Paul or ordinances to, to do rent stabilization. But another way that our affordable housing work has shown up in the last, you know, several years or so is that Every year, our mayor, um, the way Minneapolis is a, it's a weak mayor system. So the city council passes most policy. The, the, the main thing that the mayor is really in charge of is the, is the police. Um, and every year the mayor puts forth his budget with these massive increases to the police force. And every year, those of us who are organizing in the affordable housing space show up with our members. We bring JCA members who live in Minneapolis to, to City Hall and they testify and say, we actually don't wanna spend more money on police. We wanna spend more money on supportive housing. We wanna spend more money on building affordable housing and getting more folks housed. Um, and that has for us been what, what what we would call defunding the police has looked like over the, the last number of years. In the last year or so, um, since, the, since the murder of George Floyd, our work has shifted in two ways. One is that we are actually, and we've actually been engaged in um, real policy conversations about not just shifting money away from the police to other things that we like, but to fundamentally restructuring police accountability in Minneapolis through our participation in a campaign um, to get uh, a ballot initiative so that Minneapolitans, that's what we call ourselves, Minneapolitans can vote uh, in November for whether or not the city is allowed to restructure police and take them from the sole control of the mayor into a larger public safety department. So we're engaged on that. Um, the other thing is just that we have really increased the amount of work we're doing in the Jewish community. Our community safety organizer is holding these like, so you want to, so, so, so you Jews want to learn about abolition. And we're packing these Zooms with like 80, 90 people saying, teach me about this. I need to understand. I need to understand the spectrum of police reform to abolition and where does defunding fit? And we've really just found a tremendous amount of interest and energy within the Jewish community to learn more and to, to start challenging ourselves on how we think about this. And does, does Jewish community action take a, a position on that question of, you know, on the spectrum of abolition to, to defunding, to reform? Yeah, I mean, I mean, we're organizers, we are, you know, we are community organizers, which means we meet people where they are, which means we're actually willing to meet our own community on the spectrum of where they are um, and find those people meaningful work to do um, where they are and hopefully bring them closer to, I mean, we're not working on any type of like statewide policy to abolish the police, you know, like we, we definitely do work on like tangible policy and what we're working on right now is about fundamentally redesigning and restructuring the Minneapolis Police Department. I think it's very hard to argue that this is a department that can be reformed. 
Um, it's been reformed dozens of times. It doesn't work. They are um, a fundamentally broken department, and I think we start over with them is the answer. Um, and and I think that's that's JCA's position. Um, but more broadly, we want to meet. You know, because this conversation isn't just about do we abolish the police in you know this suburb of St. Paul? It's also about what does it mean to, to to have security at our schools and who are we working with and what does that mean in the community? So for us, it's really more about meeting our community where they are on the spectrum and then finding meaningful ways for them to engage there. Has being at at the kind of the center of the national spotlight, which Minneapolis has has been this past year, has that? Has that changed, magnified the work the work you do? Has it brought brought more attention to it, more scrutiny? Yes, all of it. Um, yeah, uh, it's it's definitely brought more attention um, and more eyeballs. I mean, people know where Minneapolis is who didn't, and I say, and especially in the Jewish community. Um, and yeah, there's there's a lot more scrutiny. There's also just a lot more pressure um, not to mess up. You know, um, if you just look at um, the Chauvin trial and what that meant to so many people around the country. Um, when all eyes are on you, the pressure is really on. Um, and and it's been, I mean, it's been stressful even just down to the decisions about whether George Floyd's family could be vaccinated before they attended the trial, right? There's this moment where it's like all eyes are on our city and this trial. And we have to get it right because so much is 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 at stake. You know, this was the first time for us as Minnesotans that a white police officer was even successfully charged um, and prosecuted much less convicted. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, the, the pressure has been on, but it does also mean that we're getting um, a lot more resources. And I don't necessarily um, mean financial, but that would be great. Um, uh, you know, uh, but I just mean like people reaching out to say, this is my area of expertise, or I've done research in this, or can I help you with this? Um, and so, so that's been helpful too. So getting back to anti-Semitism, yeah. I mean, first off, Minnesota is, 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 it's a very white state. In terms of racism work, in terms of anti-Semitism, maybe even in terms of Islamophobia, is there, is there a goal you're, you're reaching towards and, and working with some of these programs? Or is it just kind of one foot in, the, in front of the other, changing attitudes a little, a little bit at a time? Um, yeah, I mean... I you know, we, we tend to have policy goals and then culture change like incremental checkpoints. Um, and so, you know, because developing a shared analysis of anti-Semitism is not like a, a bill that we can pass or something that we can vote on. It's something that we just look for shifts and changes that indicate that we're going in the right direction. Um, that's, that's more of, of what we're doing. So a follow-up on anti-Semitism and I'm gonna try to keep it keep it question and not not soapbox um so this um paradigm of you know the enemy is white supremacy is really powerful i think you know we can back it up with strong arguments that white supremacists represent a very physical you know clear and present danger to to jews blacks people of color um and, and you also really get at some of the complexity in your in your in your article in terms of you know, acknowledging that that racism and Islamophobia really, ex, you know, persists in the Jewish community. I, I guess I wonder if this, if this paradigm, you know, can make us miss the full scope of anti-Semitism and or or other other threats. I mean, we we've 
we've had, um, you know, certainly pre-pandemic, there there was a spate of of um, violence against, um, you know, folks primarily Orthodox Jews perpetrated largely by African Americans, from what from what we can tell in in police reports. Um, you know, we know anti-Semitism certainly globally is 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 ongoing within certain segments of of Muslim communities. So, I guess I'm wondering. You know how does so 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 the question part how you know how how do we in your view as as an activist you know do you see any danger or or that that sort of keeping the focus on white supremacy misses the full spectrum of of anti-Semitism or what what we have to deal with? I mean, I think that like inherent in that question or in that thinking is that there's a specific type of um, like there's a there's a unique black anti-Semitism or a unique Muslim anti-Semitism. It's probably appealing if you're if you're trying to puzzle this out and not in deep relationship with with other communities to say, hmm. oh, you know, the, the the you know black people are anti-Semitic in a different way than the Proud Boys. Um, but the fact is, is, this is all coming from the same place, right? Somebody asked me a few weeks ago, so how did you know how did this like white European Christian anti-Semitism spread to all the world in all of these cultures. I mean, the answer is colonialism. The answer is like the spread of, of imperialism and, and, and Christian supremacy. Um, you know, uh, black Americans grew up here in the same culture that you and I did. And we've all absorbed white supremacy in the way that we've, we've, we've been raised in this culture. And I think the idea that other people who are targeted for their race or their nationality should should be less impacted by by white supremacy or this idea that like I often find that when let me let me just go back I often find this is a good question I often find this this sentiment that because other people are oppressed or experiencing racism or Islamophobia it's more disappointing or more egregious in some way that they might be that they might hold anti-Semitic beliefs. And for me, it's just like evidence that this is extremely large and cultural um, and that no one is immune. You know, for me to say, yes, I as a white person um, have deeply ingrained racist thought patterns that, that I received from the culture I was raised in and it's my job to, to undermine them and, and work on that means that it's perfectly normal for my black neighbor who lives two houses down to also have, have absorbed some of those patterns. Um, and so I think like, like that's an, it's an interesting question. Um, I, and I, and I realize I've gone maybe a little afield of your question. Um, but, but I, but I don't think that studying the ways that all of these things, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, misogyny are all just transmitted by white supremacy and, and, and white supremacy culture. I don't think that that makes us ignore the very real problem of this very unique like anti-Semitism that exists in minority communities, because I actually just don't think that's a thing. Um, yeah, so. What's not a thing? Um, like unique black anti-Semitism or like unique Muslim anti-Semitism. Um, you know, I, we- It's just all, an expression of the greater stew that's out yeah. there in the world, like, like Look, racism in the Jewish community is, that's- Yeah, I mean, that's been my experience. Um, and I work very closely with people of other cultures um, and that has been my experience. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk more about this. Short time out here. Do you want others to experience this level of dialogue? 
please take a moment to give us a five-star rating or review. These reviews really help other people find out about the show. If you're enjoying this interview, and I hope you are, please hit the subscribe button and be among the first to know when a new episode appears. And if you're a new listener, welcome, hello. Check out our back catalog for lots of other groundbreaking conversations. Okay, now back to the interview with Karen Maratz. So you wrote that the fact is that white Jews both benefit from whiteness and are targeted by white supremacy, which I feel like this is, this is hard and, and, and it takes work for Jews to really parse that out and understand what that means. And maybe that, that process is still early going in a lot of Jewish communities. So how do, like going back to where we started a little bit and, 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 and your friend was really surprised by by the appearance of the swastika, how do our allies and in, in other groups relate to that? Is that is that something that you f- you feel like you're having to explain to other communities? Um, no, I mean, the, the only stumbling block is that there is a there is a generational um, factor in other communities that you know, um, and we talk about this within our organ organization. On my board, I have people who, as children, were not who are white Jews who as children were not considered white by the US government, right? Um, And who have in their lifetime experienced themselves taking on a different identity. Um, And so, and that gets flattened over time um, and by people who don't have that experience. And there's also a generational split, I think in some of the communities that we work with. Um, You know, I was on a panel uh, about two years ago about um, black and Jewish relationships. And so there were, there were non, there were non-Jewish black folks, there were white Jewish folks, and there were also black Jewish folks. Um, and just on the panel, the older black folks felt a felt a uh, more obvious connection to the Jewish community around a shared story of oppression. And the younger black folks said, you know, no offense, but we really just see you as regular white people. Um, and so like I, I think that sometimes our, you know, the, I mean, the Jewish community, like in many ways, part of the reason we persist is because we really organize collectively and we build institutions and we build organizations and we support each other. And I don't, I, th- I think that to folks on the outside of that, um, they just see us as normal white folks and don't get that there is something different or unique. Um, again, I just want to name the, the way that Christian hegemony just erases the ways that we are different and the ways that we um, often feel marginalized within within society that are not obvious to people who are not us. Um, Minnesota, you said Minnesota is very white. It's also extremely Christian. Um, You know, I've been married for 18 years to a man for whom I was the first Jewish person his family ever met. Um, And so it's really normal for, for, it is really normal for folks outside of the Jewish community to not get what's different about Jews. Um, I, like, I don't, I, I don't say that as a good thing. I just say that as like a level setting expectation setting thing. Um, and so, I mean, part of what we do is we bring them into that and we say, here's how we're different. Here's what this looks like for us. And then we use that as a way to, to, to have conversation. That, that really reminds me of like James Baldwin's yes. essay from like 67, where he, you know, he makes a similar argument in that blacks have a problem with Jews because, because they have a problem with white. And, yeah. and which, which he, I mean, I think he, he doesn't get enough, if it's possible that he doesn't get enough credit, he, did a, he doesn't get enough credit for that essay, which really just 
skewers prejudice on all yeah. sides and he doesn't he doesn't give anyone any you know any break for no. for, for that um it really that's calls a, us yeah that's a beautiful essay higher. it's one that we use in our in our workshops and because part of it is that he's not just indicting whiteness you know what he's saying to the jewish community I mean, or what what i take from that is that it's not that you know, I, um, I critique the Jewish community because you're white. It's I critique the Jewish community because the, of the bargain that you are making to get to be white, right? That, that like, um, and, and, and that, so that shows up sometimes in our work too, that what are the things, what are the pieces of our individuality that we are trading away in order to, uh, to gain safety? Um, and, and how do other groups who will never feel safe in the way that we seek out, how does that, how does that, you know, how is that received by them? So sorry to, to cut you off. Yet. Not, no, not, not at all. Um, so since we're on black Jewish relations, I, I know you've worked, um, you've worked very closely with, um, with Keith Ellison, who's now Minnesota's attorney general. He was, he was a, a congressman from, from, um, Minneapolis, you know, Minneapolis. And, um, you know, he was, he was a leading candidate, uh, a couple of years ago to be the next, uh, democratic national committee chair. And it really became some of, it really became a flashpoint in, in black Jewish relations where some of his statements to Israel were brought up is, you know, the question of whether or not he had had, mm -hmm. and, um, what his ties were to the nation of Islam. And, and I was just wondering, did that, you know, experience teach you anything about black Jewish relations? Was there anything hopeful that came of, out of it or was it just kind of an ugly episode in, in, in your view? I mean, the main thing that it taught me, so, I, so I'll so i say, so Jewish Community Action has had a, a relationship with Attorney General Ellison since before he went to Congress, um, which I think is it was in 2006, maybe he was elected to Congress and he was my Congressman. Um, for 12 years until he became the Attorney General of Minnesota. Um, but before that, he was in the State House representing um, North Minneapolis, which is where I live. And JCA had a relation, a long relationship with him. Um, and we have had at, at multiple points as he has um, either achieved more public notoriety when he ran for Congress, um, this would come up. Oh, you know, Keith has ties to the Nation of Islam. Oh, Keith has ties to Farrakhan. Um, and in 2006, when he ran for Congress, he, you know, a, a number of Jewish organizations, JCA included, and like our local JCRC, all wrote letters um, saying, you know, we unequivocally are in relationship with Keith Ellison. Um, he's a good guy. And so I think the thing that that my experience in working with Keith and supporting him, um, even through being part of his transition team when he, when he was elected attorney general, my experience has, it has taught me just how pernicious um, the idea of an accusation of anti-Semitism can be against a black progressive leader, Muslim or not, but, but certainly Muslim. Um, and, and just how how reliable it is as an attack, right? It's not surprising. It's not unusual. It's um, it's like the it's like the safe resting place for um, for his 
his challengers and his attackers. And I think it's also given me the ability to see it when it's coming in other places, right? So yesterday, the Democratic majority for Israel, whatever that means, attacked Nancy Kaufman as an anti-Semite um, because they're opposing her appointment um, as, as anti-Semitism envoy to the, the, the Biden administration. She's the former chair director. of the National Council for Jewish Women or the director? <laughs> Yeah, so Nancy ran the, the, the ran NCJW, and before that, she ran the Boston JCRC. Like, and so I think what I'm saying is that like it's taught me just how reliable, trusty, and predictable this. Oh no, this person is progressive. Um, let's drag out the anti-Semitism allegations, right? Like it's it's and it's extremely played out. And I think that for for a long time, progressives were very behind on this. Um, and I think we're catching up and trying to get stronger in fighting it. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, my work with Keith has really been, a, uh, has the main thing it's taught me besides the fact that he's a tremendous attorney general and we're extremely lucky to have him in Minnesota. Um, it's really taught me about how useful and um, just like, it's like the trusty hammer in the tool belt uh, of, of, our, of, of, of the right. I guess I'm, 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 I'm curious about about you and how, how you came to this work. I, I I understand that once upon a time, you actually had the kind of job where you made more money and had a more lucrative <laughs> career and somehow chose to focus on, you know, organizing and, and making the world a better place. I was wondering like how you how you made the choice and 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 how you've stuck with it because it's been you've been in this in this field for um, more than a decade now. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I kind of came to progressive activism through probably just growing up uh, the child of two public school teachers um, who were very involved with their teachers union. My parents were both, um, uh, I grew up in South Florida in a suburb, uh, in a suburb in Broward County um, and actually spent my childhood going back and forth between my mom and my dad in South Florida. And then my father in Philadelphia on, on like breaks um, and summers and stuff like that. And so I was mostly, I mostly grew up in a household with two public school teachers who were, who were both the first person in their family to go to college and to become middle-class people whose parents had been blue collar, um, and had benefited from, um, the GI Bill and, um, and, and had been in the military and, um, and my parents were pretty involved in, in the teachers union. And I, like, I remember the first political campaign I worked on was Dukakis when I was in middle, middle school. Um, and then when I beca became a teenager, um, I got really involved in, in the punk rock scene um, and really started developing a more like left political analysis um, than just kind of liberal. Um, and went away to college and learned organizing through the lens of you know trying to save uh, low-income housing. Um, and yeah, I ended up in Minnesota, uh, after I finished my undergraduate degree and, um, was just really trying to support myself while my boyfriend went to graduate school. And so I developed this career in private higher ed. Um, like I was a teacher and a trainer and I ended up in like a suit every day doing what felt like performance art in this like very corporate private, um, for-profit college environment. And in the beginning of 2004, I just decided I'd had enough, you know, I was experiencing, um, I felt like I was constantly fighting uh, really ingrained racism and uh, misogyny and experiencing some like 
really specific, like special, special uh, Minnesota low-key anti-Semitism. There's a really special way that this happens in Minnesota. You know, like just everyone standing around the coffee maker and somebody bought a new truck and they're really excited because the guy wanted 10, but I jewed him down. And I'm like standing there with my mouth hanging open and no, wow. and none of these people have ever met a Jew before me. So they don't even realize what it is they're saying. And so I was like, you know what? I've had enough of this. And so I left my job and I enrolled in graduate school for public policy, public administration. And I took a job in uh, April of 2004, 17 years ago with Jewish community action. Um, and at, at every moment, um, that I thought I would be ready to move on or I would be ready to do other work or like you said, make more money. Um, you know, the work has just like risen up and held me in place and kept me really um, excited about doing it. You know, um, in 2008, I was, uh, I, I'd had a child and I, and I thought I might be ready to move on to do something else. And um, ICE raided a kosher food producer in, in Iowa. Um, in Postville, Iowa. And I was like, oh, I need to stay and be part of the response to that. Um, in 2011, I was like, I've had my second child, I'm ready to move on. And, and that year, Republicans in Minnesota put marriage equality on the bill. And I was like, oh, I'm going to stay and organize Jews for marriage equality. Um, and it's really just kind of continued to hold me in this work. Um, and in March of 2017, uh, I became the executive director of JCA. One comment. I was crushed in middle school when uh, when Dukakis lost. That was that just floored me at the time. Right. Uh, I was pretty I was pretty young and I was like, wait, but but <laughs> did you think it was unfair the way that like a simple moment of public image can derail um, somebody who actually has a really good message? That was, that was the tank thing. Or... Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I've heard him speak. Is it, uh, but yeah, sure. It was un sure. It was unfair. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but uh, that's. I guess, I guess that's politics. Okay, another short time out here. If you'd like to support these groundbreaking conversations of Evolve on the podcast, on the website, in our web conversations, or even the curricula we're producing, you can engage in citizen philanthropy and support us. Every gift matters. There's a donate link in our show notes. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. All right. Now back to our regularly scheduled programming. All right, Karen, you mentioned the punk rock scene and my music brain just, just went on. Um, I, I sort of grew up more along the classic rock, hard rock, metal spectrum and, and, and came to punk later and, 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 uh, and, and really think of like, say the clash and with, with, which, which you could say really had an anti-racist, anti-capitalist, you know, certainly a pretty, pretty left-leaning progressive message in a lot of their music. Yeah. Um, you, you told me you actually like had your first real encounter with um, sort of right-wing white supremacy in, in, in the punk movement. So is that right? And how do these, how do these two elements sort of coexist or not coexist? Yeah, I mean, like, and, and likewise, you know, like I kind of came to punk rock through like a, like an, like an entry point of like, Fugazi and like DC super political like um, punk music and um, Rites of Spring and um, and but at the same time and so for me punk and kind of like left politics are very intertwined um, 
at the same time, punk scenes are like super misogynist bro places. And they're also places where um, I was spent half the week in rage tweeting about Glenn Danzig making these terrible comments about how um, with cancel culture, the punk scene would never happen today because you can't sing about raping girls. And um, so I digress. I missed that. Wow. You know what? You didn't miss a thing. <laughs> it's fine. Um, so, um, yeah, um, that you know, my like the Miami punk scene where I was a young person, we have Nazi skins, you know, like there are anti-racist skins, there are there are racist skinheads. And it's this really just chilling mix. I mean, you see it online now, like with I have a staff person who actually tracks um, online white supremacist like radicalization and the way that like the racism and the anti-Semitism and the misogyny are all really bound up and closely connected. I don't think it's surprising that this shows up in um, like loud aggressive music scenes that are dominated by men. Um, but yeah, the first time I ever really stared like open white supremacists in the face is was at punk shows. It's um, not good, man. Yeah. Um, so You've you've been really heavily involved in in progressive politics at least since or organizing at least since two thousand four. It sounds like fair to say before that. Um, where do you where do you feel like things stand now? It seems like there's there's plenty of reason to be optimistic and and pessimistic. Where do you think we are? Where do you think we're heading beyond? I mean. You could you could catch that for your or uh, for your own state or or more for for the country as a whole. Yeah, um, you know Minnesota has one of the I believe Minnesota actually has the only divided legislature in the country at this point, where we wow. have a, a Democratic controlled House and a Republican controlled Senate and a Democratic governor kind of holding his finger in all of the holes, um, and it's of concern. Um, it's, a, you know, yesterday our, our, our Republican controlled Senate spent two, I mean, we're sitting here in a very short legislative session. We need police reform. We need a budget. You know, there's millions of federal dollars that have come into Minnesota that we need to spend. Um, but the Republican controlled Senate used, decided to spend their day yesterday passing um, a bill requiring picture ID for voting, um, which will not pass because the House will not accept it. The governor will never sign it. And also newsflash in 2012, this was on the ballot and Minnesotans, Minnesotans voted against it, right? And so it does concern me that for Minnesota with this divided legislature and these like deeply ingrained political divisions, we're not getting anything done to help anyone. You know, um, we need to spend money. We need to like figure out how once our eviction moratorium from the pandemic is lifted, how to not trigger just thousands of evictions and families losing their homes over like the two weeks after, after that ends. And so I'm like, I'm pretty challenged. I think like the one I mean, I, I do see a lot of hope and I'm also like, you know, I am pleasantly surprised by by the Biden administration. Um, and I think that the like, I'm also really happy that I'm seeing so much of not just my community, but like lots of folks in the suburbs who are who are far more to the left than I think I was assuming that they would be um, and really fighting for issues like police reform and um uh, that that we deeply deeply need especially in the cities and so I think like at the individual and the grassroots level I am pretty heartened I think at the like institutional political level I I'm I'm not really quite as sure and I think like there is a dynamic as somebody who is like works on the progressive left I think like the dynamic that I'm watching for and that is of concern to me is the way that um, and I don't think I'm alone in this 
is that I see um, Democrats who are more towards the center who maybe don't think that some of the things that the right wants to do, you know, um, we have currently in an education omnibus bill in Minnesota, some really ugly anti-trans language that really shouldn't mm. be there, right? Like there's all these things that they wanted that, that like the far right wants to do like anti-trans stuff and like voter suppression. And I think that Democrats don't take that as a serious enough threat and instead perceive the left as their threat and the left as their enemy um, and are ending and end up like fighting with their own left flank, right? Like um, even though we're aligned on things like choice and labor and climate change. Um, and so I think sometimes there are like, there's this middle section of and, folks. And we had, and we had this really common enemy, you know, the yeah. centrist and, and, and the far left in, in, in Donald Trump, which may or may not, you know, we don't right. know what his political future is, but but absent that common enemy, can you know, can these two can they can there be cooperation? Right. My you know my concern is that absent diet absent Donald Trump, what that kind of condensed center is really identifying as what they're fighting for is they're fighting to maintain the status quo, um, and that is that makes the pro the progressive their own progressive flank scary for them and threatening for them. And, and I am I am concerned about how we move forward if we have so many folks who are just invested in maintaining the status quo. I am wondering, are there, do you think um, there are any lessons from your own organizing work in Minnesota's very specific environment that, that might be replicated by or modeled by other groups around around the country, around North America? Yeah, um, there's a few things that we've learned. I mean, first, everything has to start in relationship, especially with the anti-Semitism work that we're doing. You know, um, too often Jewish organizations and leaders make pronouncements about the anti-Semitism that we're seeing from other communities or that we perceive from other communities completely out of relationship with those communities. And it will not shock you to learn that that's actually not the path to, to making things better. Um, right, like starting in relationships, starting in a place of like generosity and openness will always get us to a more collaborative like resolution, right? Um, so, so, and that goes that and that goes not just for like critiquing, but also for like stepping up. So if if you know if you if if you're saying we the Jewish community you know support Black Lives Matter or whatever it is, great. Go, go build some relationships, go, go do this work in relationships because it's not like, I think sometimes we as a community can act like it's for us alone to decide whether we work, work on an issue or not. And it's actually not. The folks who are most impacted by an issue also have to want us there. Um, and that's about relationships. So I think that um, relationships and starting from a place of generosity, um, being ready to recognize the, um, recognize uh, the dynamics in our own community that keep us keep us from moving forward. Um, I also think that like as a Jewish community, um, we hold other communities extremely accountable for their um, for needing to be needing to be in good relationship with us or in good stead with us, right? So candidates have to be good with the Jews or elected people. Like, how dare you not be in relationship with the Jews? But within our own community, we're just ready to throw each other away. Um, you know, and that's that's really sad. Um, you know, some of the way that some of the ugliest email that I get as a progressive Jewish leader are from other Jews. 
Sure. Um, you know, and, and for me, that's, that's really sad. And I think we can do a lot better. I mean, our community is like literally supposed to be disagreeing with each other all the time. And yet when we do our, our, our answer is to cast, cast each other out, um, you know, and to reject each other. So, um, that, that's, that's, those are the things that I, I think I would say we've learned. Well, Karen Marat, I really appreciated this this chance to to speak and 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 get into some of these issues. Um, I I really enjoyed it. I think uh, I, I really thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks, Brian. It was it was it was great. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Karen Marat about the Evolve essay. Fighting anti-Semitism is a critical piece of a racial justice agenda. So what did you think of today's episode? I'd love to hear from you. Evolve is about curating meaningful conversations and you are a part of that. Send me your questions, comments, feedback. You can reach me at bschwartzman at reconstructingjudaism.org. We will be back next month with a brand new episode. Evolve, Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub and edited by Sam Walks. Our theme song, Ilufinu, is by Rabbi Miriam Margols. This show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>